welcome to the Becoming Us podcast. Sponsored by Yonder Limited, experts in project management and business support service. Hello and welcome to the Becoming Us podcast. I'm Christine. I'm Winnie. And I'm Siobhan. With a big plate, with a big food in your mouth, Win. Sorry. And this is our episode three of our medical series. Today we're really excited because we have a guest who has been through infertility. Her journey is absolutely profound if you ever heard this journey. I can't wait for her to go into it. She's going to be coming up in a moment. Uh, Today's episode is about uh, infertility taboos in the Black and Asian communities. Specifically, we found it quite challenging in getting guests to come on and talk about their journeys for this particular episode, especially of those of Black and Asian communities. What we also found was that sometimes the woman was um, happy to come on and discuss her infertility and, and create awareness, but when speaking to her partner they weren't happy about her coming on and it was sort of a almost I got the feeling that he didn't want anyone knowing that there were issues in that department coming from him or his wife which you know is we we totally respect but again where does that stem from and that's what we ask ourselves when what do you I think it's a complex subject and it evokes a lot of emotions and it brings about particularly in black and asian communities a lot of uh, opinions and judgment on who you are as a person um i've heard it being called um punishment for previous ills that you've done it's very complicated but i think it's it's surrounded by shame and failure definitely personal definitely and it's it's wrong it's um wrong i mean we just heard from um episode two kelly jade was speaking about all the uh infertility that she went through and not once did she feel you know what i'm gonna go and seek some help and speak to someone about it or have to suppress my feelings and it's because she got the feeling oh i can't really talk about my infertility such a big stigma attached to it particularly for women it's like you're a failure if you can't have children and then there's a judgment for for for, for male males in relationships that they've married a barren woman um and you know they can't what are they contrite if they're not producing children yeah and i mean it just it it's also the question is whether are couples of um, ethnic backgrounds willing to do it they do ivf or they've had sort of some sort of intervention in conceiving um, not admitting it, no. I don't know any I know people that have gone through IVF Asians and blacks but they are not they I found out by accident actually that's true the, 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 the very few people that I've come across it's been a conversation I found out by accident either yeah. through somebody that didn't know that I didn't know and the, um, why don't I mean there is a time that white people are more open to talking about it because yeah. like the, similarly I know one black couple that have been through it and I I think I just found out but there's a, a, a white couple that I know who will openly say yeah we had our twins by IVF yeah quite open about it so again it stems back to cultural differences yeah and and cultural taboos and mm. you know the the shame and the stigma associated with not being able to have children or not being able to have cho- conceive children naturally you know there's this big pressure put on us to have children oh when are you going to have kids if you get married first or when's the when's the baby coming when's the baby coming and then when it doesn't happen you it's 
people don't want to say, well, actually, it's not happening. It's not working because this is what's going on with us. Yeah. And then, you, you know, know, they've got more support that way. So we're going to yeah. go straight into our guest, Kemi. And hope you guys really enjoy the interview. It was really, really great to speak to her and let us know if you're going through similar journeys. And we'll speak to you on the other side. Thank you, Kemi, for coming on. Just to start, we just want to want you to let our listeners know about your journey. So go ahead. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, I, feel a bit, I don't know why I feel thrown. Um, okay, so my journey started off with being diagnosed with um, PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, um, and just being told that it was a hormone imbalance and that it was quite common. He actually said it was quite common within the ethnic community, but then there'd be nothing for me to worry about other than the fact that I may have problems in the in the future. And so I was then put on the pill to regulate my period. But I think it was only a few years later that I found out that it doesn't actually regulate your period. It just gives you a bleed and it may not be an actual period. It's just an artificial bleed. And I got married at 26. I remember when I, when I did get married, everyone was saying, you know, typical Nigerian thing, which is, in, we want to come and eat rice in nine months. We want to celebrate again in nine months. But my husband and I had already decided that we wanted to wait two years because we liked to travel. Mm. And we just wanted to have a bit of fun, to be honest with you. So was there um, and, uh, a bit of pressure from your family to get pregnant straight away? It was. I think it was just the comments round about when we were, when just around about when the, the wedding was taking place. Mm. Following that, I do remember a few months, my mum calling me, Kemi, have you got anything to tell me? <laughs> and I'd say no. <laughs> and she said, any news? No, mum, like, get a new hobby. Um, <laughs> so that, was just, that was just a joke that she would say. I remember specifically in Stratford, when I was working in Stratford, I saw someone who was at my wedding, but for the life of me, I didn't know who she was. Um, and obviously that goes with the big Nigerian weddings where you have people that you don't know who are there. Everyone's an auntie um, and an uncle. Exactly, it was an auntie. <laughs> <laughs> and she stopped me and was telling me about, you know, I was at the wedding and obviously I don't know who you are. And she was telling me her name. I really don't know, till this day I don't know who she is. I said, okay, okay, what is it? Is any baby yet? And I just remember thinking, what's your business? Yeah. You know, at this point I hadn't really, I think this was still in year one, I hadn't really... It hadn't really hit me that there was a delay. I had just, we had just thought that we were still going to wait. And then I, I remember meeting one of my pharmacist friends um, in Tesco and I was collecting a pill and she's the one who, you know, said to me, why are you on the pill? This thing, it can take years to come out of your system. What's the reason? And I told her about the PCOS and, and she just advised me just to stop taking it to see what would happen to my body. So then um, we came off the pill and I think about a year later, we realised, okay, nothing's happened. Maybe this PCOS thing is a bit, little bit more serious than where than we actually think. So we started going back to the GP back and forth just to try and make sure that everything was okay. I think I personally felt almost like the world was looking at me. My mum stopped asking me the questions because I'm quite close with my sisters. And then I started confiding in my sister to let her know that I think I'm actually quite worried about this PCOS thing. Because um, what if it means that, you know, I can't have children or what if I have to wait or what if I have to have fertility treatments? And I'm sure my sister probably told my mum just to stop asking me questions. And I'm also so grateful that my husband's parents never once asked. And I, you know, I used to say to my husband, has your mum said anything? And he said, no, she's always just said, in God's timing, you can't, you know, force mm. God to, to do what he, he's going to do. So I was really happy in that sense that no one put pressure on me. I do remember a specific time, I think maybe this is year two, 
where we was at a family wedding and an auntie just pulled me to one side. <laughs> I have to do it in the accent just so yeah. that you get... Go for it. <laughs> Kenny, is everything okay? And I said, yeah. Oh, I'm so worried about you. I said, auntie, why? We haven't come to eat rice. I said, what, what do you mean? I know, I know what she, I knew what she was talking about, but mm. I thought, I'm just going to play dumb. And I said, I don't, what do you mean? She said, oh, you know, I'm still praying for you. I know God will do it. And I was like, oh my gosh, auntie, you're talking about the baby. I'm not worried. Don't worry about it. I'm okay. And she just looked at me. Oh, you know, I, I'm going to pray with your mum. Just and I, it, that, I think that just, that point, I felt that, oh, it must be everyone who's thinking the same thing, that we were at your wedding in 2011. It's now 20, 20, 2012 and nothing's happened. And I also remember a specific time in church during praise and worship. <laughs> this guy tapped me on my shoulder and said, I hope you don't think I'm being nosy, but is everything okay with you and Peter? And I said, everything like what? And he said, you know, with the baby. And I was so hurt. I just thought praise and worship is really important to me, first of all. Like, yeah. just don't talk to me during that singing. But to tap me when... I don't think that we're close or anything. I don't, so just I don't a member of the congregation. Have. Yeah. So and that that just made me feel like, okay, people are definitely talking about me, made me feel a little bit self-conscious, mm. made me like feel less of a woman. And then it got to 2012, we went and sought help at the hospital and they gave us a timeline as to how long it would take before we got to IVF. I think it was, it, it was about 18 months or so. And I remember thinking... I don't want to wait 18 months to get to IVF, just do the IVF. Even though, in theory, we hadn't been trying for that long, but I had it in my mind that this, like, I just wasn't going to get pregnant without any help. And then January of 2013, I started spotting, and I remember my friend saying to me, go and take a pregnancy test. And I said, look, I haven't had a, I haven't had a period in, like, two months because of the PCOS. There's no way that I could be pregnant. She said, no, take the test. And I said, listen, this thing, I've got PCOS, this is spotting, blah, blah, blah. And then we got home and I took the test and I was actually pregnant and I couldn't believe it because I hadn't had a period in two months and I just didn't think that was physically possible. And the spotting continued for a number of weeks. And then I remember one day just coming home from work and I had these really bad pains. And I went to, I said to my husband, Look, I think we need to go to the hospital because this pain is a lot. The, the bleeding's coming more heavy. We got to the hospital and then I needed to go to the toilet. I sat on the toilet and <laughs> this is going to be so much information, but literally it just, it wasn't urine. It was just blood that was just gushing out. Mm. Um, they that assessed was... me and said, oh, sorry. That was a um, pregnancy. Yeah, that was, that was, that was the, the miscarriage. So the next day they told me that, you know, your baby's leaving you. And I just thought, okay, this is really sad. And I was just really angry. I was angry at God. Um, so I'm a Christian and I just felt that, you know that I've been waiting for something for so long. Why would you give it to me and take it away in like two weeks? Did I you tell anyone that you were pregnant at that point? Did you tell family? No, my mum. Okay. I told I told my mum and. How did you feel telling sister. her that you had uh, lost? Oh, did you get that, any support? That was just yeah. I have a really supportive family, yeah. so they, you know, they. One thing that I love about them is that they didn't spend time crying with me. It was Kemi. Let's just thank God that, you know, you're still alive. Yes, it's, it's, I know it hurts, but cry for a, a period and then wipe your tears and carry on. Um, and I remember the nurse saying to me, well, at least you know you can get pregnant. I've read your notes. 
at least you know you can get pregnant and there's not an issue and I thought I was so hurt by that like you don't mm. say that to someone who's just lost a baby mm. um, but then I then felt that maybe I am taking this a little bit too seriously maybe I should just get on with it because at least I know that there's nothing wrong mm. um, but I did feel that it was a baby that I'd lost it was a, it was a life that was lost and I didn't feel like I had the time to grieve and there was no counseling that was offered to me or anything it was come back next week we're going to do a DNC and then it was here's the medication don't try to get pregnant for the next three months nothing so what's and a DNC said, for our listeners um I can't I don't even know I can't remember what it stands for but it's when they um it's under general anesthetic and they go in just to make sure that there's nothing left of the pregnancy okay. they so it's out. not an incomplete pregnancy uh, miscarriage they want to make sure yeah okay. yeah but it but I knew that the baby had come out because we had it in a bag. It came out when I was in the oh toilet God. and my husband went to the toilet to pick it up and to show them. So, and what they did say to us was that they would test to see what the reason for the miscarriage was. Till this day, no one has contacted me. And we, we tried to get back in contact with the hospital and it was someone's going to call you back. But till this day, I still don't know what, what the cause was that, yeah, I just didn't feel like there there was anything. And when we went back to the GP, he was he, he still said, "Look, you're young. You know, you've been pregnant before. Yes, it resulted in a miscarriage, but at least we know that you know you're able to get pregnant without any without any help." I just kind of felt that I was you know pushed to one side, and you know just left to get on with it. But and I think around that time, my my sister in law then got pregnant. My, some of my friends got pregnant. And then in our church, there was quite a, a number of us that got married at the same in the same year in 2011, and everyone was pregnant. And oh I just felt, oh my yeah. god, I I literally felt like the black sheep. No pun intended, but yeah, literally just felt like the odd one out. That did okay, you still go out, to everyone. family gatherings? Knowing, did you feel anxiety going to family gatherings? I should say, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah I, it, it's only maybe around 2015 that I realized that I was actually depressed about everything mm-hmm. um I could still go out and smile and everything but I lich every time someone spoke about a baby I just wanted the world to just swallow me up it was just such a dark place that I was in um and I didn't I was I felt ashamed that I wasn't pregnant and I felt ashamed of the way that I was feeling and I felt that if I go and tell them that I'm feeling depressed then they won't refer me for fertility treatment or they'll think that I'm not capable enough to have a baby. So I was just keeping everything inside and I wasn't going out. I'd go to work and I'd have a look on my face and everyone would know it was, okay, don't talk to Kevin. Does it specify that um, that if you suffer from mental health, you can't go through IVF? That was that was just me. I was, I, oh. yeah, I was very, very paranoid about everything. I just, I didn't know what the rules were, but I just thought they would definitely say... If I was, you know, getting counselling or anything, they'll definitely say you're not in the mental state to go through fertility treatment or to have a baby. I just felt that the whole world would make a judgment and a call on something, and I didn't want that to happen because I, I wanted a baby so badly. Um, and then I started looking a lot online to see whether I could you know, talk to people, like join some some sort of support group. And I noticed that, well, there was no one out there who kind of looked like me. Um, I didn't know whether there'd be anyone else who was speaking about it, anyone else who'd gone through it. Um, So I really, really felt alone. And then 
you know, I'd speak to my husband about it and he'd always say, Kenny, I didn't marry you for babies, I married you for who you are and children mm. are just a bonus. And then I had a, my god sister who was going through the same thing, but we were kind of together. So I kind of wanted someone someone outside my circle mm. to speak to. But I was too, I literally just felt like the whole world was looking, pointing and laughing at me. I felt like a failure of a woman. But I, I just thought, well, you know, I've got all, I've got boobs, I have a vagina. These are, these are meant to be for like my future babies and like my body's not working. I'm not having a period every month. Mm. I'm not ovulating. I don't understand what's going on. I'm putting on weight. I can't, I can't control it. It was just such a hard time. And every time I went to my GP, he just kept bobbing me off, telling me, you're really young. You've been pregnant before. There's nothing wrong with you. Go away and just keep trying. You know, and, do you feel um, that he discriminated you? I, I'm, I'm not too. I'm not too sure what. Maybe age discrimination, mm. because he kept saying, "You're young. Why are you in a hurry to to have children?" He said, "You're not even thirty yet. You know what you guys do for a living." And you know, I said, it's "So inappropriate, husband, isn't it?" Um, he, he was. It, he was. It was only after that I met someone who lived in the same borough as me that I found that they had a similar experience with him. And by the time I was, I had given birth to Samuel. He had retired, but yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. But yeah, he he did take us seriously, and when when we went to seek private medical um help, she the consultant then told us that you live in the borough of Thurrock, you're eligible for um free IVF treatment. And I just thought, wow, this guy never once told me that this is what it is. I don't understand why he did tell us these are our options or anything. And um, she, I said, look, I don't think he's going to refer us. And she then wrote a letter to him. And he was more offended at the fact that she had written him a letter to say, can you refer these people for um, IVF funding? Than the fact that we were seeking, you know, seeking help. So in the end, we got the referral. I think that decision to, to go down the IVF route was a very tough one for us because we, when I think when you when you're a part of especially like a Nigerian African community, no one really talks about IVF. Even though you know that people have gone through IVF, no one talks about fertility treatment because people then start saying, "Did you conceive naturally or was it with IVF? Did you have a natural who, birth?" Who says that? Sorry, people in your community say that. I, I get a lot. Was it? Did you? Yeah. So when we finally did get pregnant. The, the first question I got, oh, was it natural? Was it IVF? But Especially that was the when it's taking a while to get there, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. If it doesn't happen in the first year or two, then it's like you have problems. So then the next question is, what did you do? Yeah. What journey have you walked Not that it concerns anybody. It's not your... how you got pregnant or... Yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty hard, but people people do ask that. And even to today, Samuel's almost four, people still ask me, what type of birth did you have? Was it a natural vaginal birth? I said, well, he came out from my stomach, but I don't think it's unnatural, the fact that they had to open me to take him out. Uh-huh. I don't, so I still feel like I'm being placed in a box of unnatural something because mm-hmm. I had to have Do you think, so I, I know um, I'm Ugandan and my African background and my family members, there's a thing around religion and how, you know, the, the idea is that God will bless you and it's God's timing. And I believe wholeheartedly about that too. But because there is that conversation, people then don't seek the help in time. Um, and so they'll go years without actually thinking, actually, let me Google it. Let me speak to somebody about it. So then there's the whole stigma of even raising that subject years down the line, because it's like, wow, you've waited all these years. You still haven't conceived. And now you want to talk about IVF and all this other intervention. 
when you should have been waiting for God's timing. It's it's very conflicting. It's you you never know how to handle the situation. You don't know how to, whether to talk about it, whether it's too soon, whether you should be waiting on God's timing. It's very odd. Yeah, I I, I totally I I see where you're coming from. I totally agree. When we decided that we were go going to go down the IVF route, I think someone from Christian Radio contacted me after reading my blog and um, they invited me on to speak about my journey and they said it wasn't it was a pre-recorded one mm. and by the time she had sent me the finished version and I'd listened to it I was really annoyed because the 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 interview had been cut in a way that had totally you know taken out all the research that I said that my husband and I did the prayers that we did it made it seem like we just said, oh, we can't have a baby, let's go and have IVF, like you're going to the shop to buy some clothes. And I remember listening to, she then had a counter person who was against IVF because apparently that's playing God. And the lady, I'll never forget, the lady said, oh, it's really disappointing to hear Kemi and her husband's story that they felt that IVF was their only answer. It's almost like it's playing God. And I I was fuming because number one, I felt that this is a Christian radio station that you've edited it, edited it in such a way to make it great for listening. And I didn't think that Christian radio stations did things like that, you know. And then second of all, I wasn't even given the opportunity to respond to what this other lady had said. So this interview has just been aired yeah. as if we were both in the same room. And so I was really annoyed about that. But it just made me think that so many people have that view. And I remember my husband said, look, at the end of the day, when it comes to children, no matter whether you go through IVF, only God can control whether it actually works or not. That's why people have multiple rounds of IVF anyway. So from egg collection, some people go in and have egg collection, they collect zero. Some people go in, they collect, like in my case, 21. And then you take 21. Some people, after collecting 21 eggs, they didn't even those eggs don't even fertilize mm. you know so I had 21 collected and I think maybe nine fertilized and then you then need to get to day five which is blastocyst for them to transfer some people get to day five and there's zero you know so with me I had 21 on day five there was one and then you have one transferred back only God has control as to whether or not that is going to stay yeah. so no I don't feel like I'm playing God and my husband always says you know, when you have a headache, that's like saying, oh, I'm not going to take paracetamol because I'm playing God. You know, if you have, if you're constant, if there's something wrong with you and you go to the GP, there's something that's not working right. You know, something's not happening with my body. I'm not having a period every month like what I'm supposed to. I'm going to go to the doctor to go find out what's wrong. I don't believe that's playing God. You know? Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, yeah. And it's so refreshing yeah. to hear you say that because it's such a stigma in in Asian and black communities, isn't it? How they're just like, oh, just pray, just pray. It'll be fine. One of the things, whenever, um, if someone says, oh, can you come on our, our podcast or can you come and speak somewhere? I always tell them, I'm going to talk about my faith. If you're going to cut it out, then I don't want to do it. Because for some people, they have, I don't know, yoga, some type of medication, meditation. For me, I can hand on heart say that my faith has brought me through it. There were, there were times where I was seriously angry at God. Like, I'm your friend. I don't want to speak to you. I don't want to pray, literally. And I felt that, what did I do to deserve that? But when I took myself out of the equation, I realized that it came back to my faith anyway. So my faith is such a big part in everything, in, you know, Samuel, it's even, you know, through the, the cancer journey, like my faith is what has kept me sane. 
So I always make sure that I tell people, I'm going to talk about my faith. If you have an issue with it, then let's not talk. And the other thing I noticed was, I think infertility is a really complex subject. And I think I personally understood it originally as you couldn't conceive at all. Mm, yeah, um, unless you have a, a intervention, um, but maybe you can help us clarify what what infertility is. Uh, and then the other reading was that if you you're infertile if you can't conceive after twelve months or so. Yes, I think that's the definition that if you you get put in the infertility box if you've been trying if you've been having unprotected sex for a period of twelve months. So you know there's primary well there's just infertility which is someone who's never. Um, given birth and there's secondary infertility for someone who's had a baby and then is struggling to conceive again um but you're right there is that preconception that infertility is for people who you know just can't get pregnant and one of the things that i remember saying to someone when they were asking me about you know what am i doing anything i said listen i've had a miscarriage but i don't need to walk around with a sign in my head saying miscarriage so you know that i've been pregnant you know, it's none of your business. That was traumatic for me and everything. And I think that there just isn't enough information out there for people to to know, A, don't ask people the questions, but B, infertility, it's such a complex thing. There's so many different layers to mm-hmm. it. And how one person fits into the category of infertility is different from the next. Yeah, totally. I think it's a really misunderstood area. And, there's, and I think because it's under, misunderstood, people don't know how to deal with it. I, I know from the few people that I have come across that have gone through the experience, not necessarily from an ethnic background, but they talk about feelings of grief. And I know you mentioned that you felt depressed at a point, but there is this thing around grief that um, black and Asians don't quite handle very well. Um, and because we're not very good at dealing with grief, we never know how to pick up and deal with the consequences of grief and the consequences of a failed pregnancy intervention or, you know. So that makes that makes the picking yourself up, even in faith, really difficult, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, growing up, even until now, you don't re- you rarely see people of colour talk about counselling or some sort of therapy. Yeah. It's all, That's almost like a taboo. So... It's almost like if you go through any type of trauma, you're just supposed to pick yourself up and get on with it. Yeah. I've never, I've never, it took me a while to come across people who said, oh, you know, I'm going to see a therapist. And you associate people like therapists with people who have got something mentally wrong with them. Yeah, Sometimes true. you just need to talk to someone who's outside yeah. of your circle that's got nothing to do with you, nothing to do with faith or whatever. You just need to talk to an independent person who's going to see things differently. And I yeah. think with the miscarriage, that's how I was. I just thought, oh, okay, well, I just need to get on with it. And it was only maybe a few months later that I really, really cried about it. And I thought, I just, I lost my baby. That was a, I didn't care whether, it, you know, it was eight weeks. That was a baby, you know. That was something that was living inside me that had a heartbeat. That was a human being. I'm allowed to grieve over it. Just mm-hmm. because no one saw my swollen belly or, you know, I didn't feel saw the baby hit, I lost it a life was lost and mm. we're in our right minds to to grieve and like you rightfully said there's i don't feel like there's enough i don't know open arms for you to feel no. that it's it's okay it's okay to grieve or i don't know i don't know how to articulate it but i just never felt that i could grieve because i never i've never seen people around me who 
actually grieved over something like that. It's, oh, you know, even to this day, I still talk to people who say, oh, yeah, I've had, you know, like three miscarriages. It's not like a passing comment. I don't understand. Like, it, it, no, I mean, and that's the thing. People say specifically, I've had a miscarriage, and they don't necessarily associate it with infertility, as we've, as we've come to understand the definition. Mm. So they won't boldly say, I'm infertile. And yeah. because for whatever the... Cause because of the complexities of the definition and what that means is they're not going to openly say I'm infertile and because of that I've had three miscarriages and I haven't been able to conceive for the past three years and I'm considering you know those conversations never happen it's it's just it's, it's very specific and then there's no outcome there's no support there isn't a conversation there aren't open arms like you say um so it was really refreshing that you were forthcoming and your page is so full of life you, despite all your trauma your page is full of life and you know it's great that your family have been supportive but it's the wider community that we we are trying to help open up the discussion and I think it starts with acknowledging that black and Asians are affected with these same issues that white people and other races deal with it's just we're not we're not openly discussing them a lot of times i get messages on instagram from people who may have said oh kemi i've been following you for years or um thank you blah blah, blah. and i've and i look at the person's profile and i think oh okay you're not following that they, they may not be following me yeah they're they're following my journey and they sometimes they tell me about what they're going through and i'm just thinking gosh like this is more than what I can do. You actually need professional help. Mm. And, you know, when I ask them, have you spoken to anyone? Oh, no, I'm just speaking to my husband about it. That's always the answer. I'm speaking mm. to my husband or my husband doesn't understand. And these are people that, you know, are asking me for advice. All I can do is tell you about, you know, what I've been through and the things that I've done. But I'm not trained in a way that, you know, a, a therapist would be able to, um, to help you or a counsellor. And I do believe that, that GP surgeries, they need to, especially if a woman is of a certain age bracket and she's married, there probably should be like a conversation as to what's your plans for the future. I mean, I'm a mortgage advisor. I ask, I have to ask people, do you see yourself, are there any changes in the future? Do you see yourself getting married? Okay, do you get married? Are you going to have any kids? Because if they then say they're going to have kids, then I need to factor that into affordability. What's going to happen when you go on maternity leave? So if I'm having these conversations as a mortgage yeah. advisor, yeah, and you're not even getting the conversation at your own GP yeah. or anything, it's absolutely crazy. Mm. There's no forward planning, is there? Yeah. No. So, Kemi, I think I know from previous interviews that you've tried that you had um, suicidal thoughts through your infertility. Can you just go into that a bit and how you cope? Because I was in such a low place, I I think the suicidal thoughts probably came around year year four. And that was when I just thought, okay, this is, this thing is, it's not working. Yes, I've been pregnant. I've had a miscarriage. Everyone keeps telling me that, you know, you've been pregnant before. At least it's not a case where, you know, you haven't been pregnant. At least you know that it's possible. But it just wasn't enough for me because I I wanted it so, so badly. And I remember just thinking, if I was dead, my husband could just go and marry someone else and he could have the children and someone could make him happy. You know, if I wasn't in a picture, imagine, you know, what, how great his life would be. And um, I just didn't want to be here anymore at all. I just felt that it, the pain, just waking up each day, you've got to wake up each day and renew your hope. That is so painful to wake up knowing that I'm not getting a period every month like what I should do. You know, so it's, I'm renewing my hope on something that may not happen. 
and it was just it was just really really tough to remain positive where each mother's day someone would say don't worry this time next year this time next year i don't want to hear this time next year Mm. i didn't want to hear it because i wanted it now and then i was also just so fed up of praying on the 31st of december that god this year i can't wait to carry my baby i can't wait to do this and then repeating the same prayer points every year I just wanted out. I just felt that I just don't want to do this. And then the only, I think the only reason why nothing ever came of it is because someone once told me when I was a teenager that if you commit suicide, you go to hell because you've taken your own life. That was the only thing. Literally, I was was like, hell is real. I don't want to be there, you know? But it was was weird. I didn't want to be here, but yeah, I didn't want to go to hell. And I just, and I I knew that these thoughts, they, they weren't of God. I knew that they weren't normal, but... But did you, did you, um, because you know, we're talking about infertility and grief, they go together, uh, but it's not widely known in our communities. Did you feel, oh, I can go to my GP and speak about getting counselling or addressing? No, I didn't. I I literally felt that there was no help because I felt that my GP knew the issue. He knew that we were trying for a baby. He, He wasn't, you know, Peter and Kemi, this is the sort of things that you can do. Um, whilst you're going through fertility treatment, here's the counselling. There wasn't anything like that. He wasn't supportive in that sense. The, the support that we really got was from Vaughan Hall Clinic, where we had our fertility treatment from um, the consultant who said, I'm going to refer you for counselling. Your body is going to go through a lot. It's a lot that you're going to go through. We said no for the first round because I just thought that when you have <laughs> IVF treatment, that you're going to have twins and it was going to work. Mm. That was my knowledge of IVF. Little did I know that, you know, it could, there's a possibility that it couldn't work. I I did not think that I'd be in the statistics of it not working. So when it didn't work at the first round, I was heartbroken. And that just sent me into depression again. Like, what, like, hang on a minute, I can't do this on my own. I've got help. And yet my body is still not working. Just take me now, you Mm. know. So when we went for the second round, she then, and it was via Skype that we did the counselling session. The best thing that I've ever done. The best thing just to, I remember the lady said, my husband had said it to me before, but she said it to me. She said, Kemi, I need you to stop being selfish and thinking about yourself because it's not about you. This has nothing to do with you. And I was like, it's true. I have zero control over whether this works or not. You know, I can't keep putting the pressure on myself because that could affect the treatment. So I guess it's, it's it's not as simple as when people say, oh, you know, just take it easy and relax. But I just had to try and find ways to occupy myself because the more I wasn't occupied, the more that my mind kept telling me and the voices kept telling me that you're a failure, you're not a woman, you've got all your, your other people who are around you who are getting pregnant, having babies, some of them on baby number two, look at your age, even though I wasn't even 30 yet, but you know, there was so many negative thoughts. Well, that were going you felt that and you weren't even 30 yet. I wasn't even 30. Whereas we, like, we know, like we have again. friends and family of uh, women in their late 30s that are having these wow. these issues, yeah, and they're just, just amazing that they're that much pressure on someone in their late 20s was also feeling yeah so talk about you had your beautiful baby boy yeah Samuel. Samuel. <laughs> um yes. had, sorry how old is he now four he's three he's gonna be four in he's november three. oh my gosh oh my, that? my rainbow child was born in november as well i think that's a rainbow month you know <laughs> wow actually it's true it's yours as well wasn't it um really but then something happened, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, so after breastfeeding Samuel for a year, I found a lump in my breast. And I mean, pregnancy was, everything was all new to me. So 
I just remembered that when my mum was breastfeeding my younger sister that she'd always complain that her breasts were rock hard. So I felt a lump in my breast and I thought that that was just normal because when you don't breastfeed for a while, your breasts go hard and see my mum with my younger sisters, I just thought that, oh, okay, this is what's happening when your breast, your milk's drying up. So I kind of left it and it was really painful. But then again, I kept saying to myself that it's because your milk's drying up. That's what's, that's what's going to happen. And then in the April, I realized that the lump was just to one side and it was extremely painful. Um, so my husband just said, go to the GP and just get it checked out. It might, it may be a trapped duct. Mm. Um, and I, obviously I went onto Google and I saw people had trapped, trapped milk ducts. And so I thought that that's what it was. And I went to get assessed and the, I remember the GP saying to me, there's, there's no lump. And I said, no, there is a lump here. It is. And he said, um, no, and and because it hurts, um, it's definitely not cancerous because a cancerous lump doesn't hurt. I said, fine. But they had to send me to the hospital anyway to get the um, the ultrasound because that's a protocol. So I went and, you know, they assess you in the room first. And again, the guy said, I can't feel a lump, but you're here, so you have to have the scan. So I went and had the scan and the lady said, oh, you know, this is, so it's just, your milk ducts are still active. This looks like it's hormonal, but it's your body going back to normal after giving birth. And for some people, it can take up to 18 months. I said, oh, okay. So I just went off and that was it. By the June, I realized that it was it was getting bigger. I could feel it towards my armpit. And it was just painful to sleep on that side. If I carried Samuel on that side, it was really, really painful. And at this point, he's, you know, just turned um, a year. So he would always try and hit me. And it was just excruciating pain so I called my GP again and this time it was a female she said you know what don't come in I'm just going to refer you straight away to the hospital so I went to the hospital and it was a female consultant who saw me first and she said okay show me how you check your breasts so I just you know said to her this is what I do and she said that's not how you check your breasts and it really hit me that I was 33 and no one had ever shown me how to check my breasts I didn't know how to do it it's only because the lump hurt so she showed me how to check and she said, okay, this is where I want them to scan. Your breasts are quite busy. Um, and it was the same lady who had scanned me in the April who was scanning me again. And she, you know, she, she started scanning me and she said, oh, okay, I remember you. Why are you back? And I said, well, it's got bigger and it's more painful. And she said, okay, well, nothing's changed. Everything still looks the same. This still looks hormonal. So, and there was a student in the room and normally I'm quite who is this person why are they in the room Mm. I don't want them to see me but I just kept I I just kept quiet and she's the one who you know saw something on the screen that said oh what about I can't remember what she said I just remember she said it was a student it was a student wow yeah so um the lady went out to talk to someone came back in and then she she went out again she said okay get dressed I'm just gonna go talk to someone and she came back sorry can you get undressed again she scanned me again and then she said, okay, we're going to go into this next room. And then we had to have a biopsy. I just thought, this is really, really strange. Mm. You were so confident like 10 minutes ago that this was milk and why my back? And all of a sudden we're taking a biopsy of what? So they did the biopsy and then they said, before you go, could you go and get a blood test? And I just thought, oh God, okay. <laughs> so I went and did the blood test. And then two days later, I got a phone call to say, can you come back in? We want to scan your other breast. We want to... Um, take uh, more samples for a biopsy we need you to do a bone scan we need you to do they just a mammogram as well they don't do mammograms if you're under 35 so i just thought this is all of this for dried breast milk this is a lot um so 
yeah so over the next coming weeks i've been in and out and they said you know it takes two weeks for us to get the results the results are going to be on the 16th of august make sure you come with someone that's just a protocol and the 16th of august was my dad's 60th birthday and we had planned like this big surprise dinner for him and everything at the o2 yeah i i went in there just thinking that you're going they're going to tell me that this is a cyst or something or it is trapped milk and just hearing them say i'm sorry that you have breast cancer i just thought all i could think about was okay no this isn't what god has told me but also all the times when i felt that i wanted to die that was when i realized how much i actually wanted to live yeah there is no way that i can i can die yeah i just literally just broke down and i just had one question which was what's the survival rate and the consultant said to me look uh, cancer's not great, but you've got the best type of cancer, which is breast cancer, because we can physically take it out. They did a test to find out whether you're triple negative or whether it's hormone receptive. And I remember them saying to me, um, are you on the pill? I said, no, the pill is not in my vocab, because it took me five years to have a baby, so mm. I'm not on any type of contraception at all. He said, because, you know, you've got a high level of hormones. And this cancer feeds off of hormones. And the only thing I could think of was the fact that I'd had four rounds of IVF. I said, no, all I've had is IVF. And he said, no. I said, is there studies to show that IVF can lead to cancer? He said, well, it is one of the um, side effects. I said, nope, no one told me that. Is it really? One of the, yeah, apparently it is. It's when you got your, the form that you sign, one of the, same with paracetamol, one of the things is breast cancer. And I said, what are the odds of that? that most people have quadruplets, you know, sextuplets. I have one child and I come out with breast cancer. So I was I was upset for the, you know, for the first few hours and then um my dad's birthday got cancelled. My mum, typical Nigerian woman, I called her, she dropped the phone and my sister told me she was rolling on the floor. That's fine. Um so everyone met up at my house and it was just a it was just a weird feeling. But one thing that I'm so grateful for again is that they just said kelly we're, we're in this together we're gonna beat it it's not on to death within the next day i don't know what it was actually i truly believe that it was just god because i was okay i just had peace that i'm not gonna die and the same way that i'm telling people about my journey for infertility is the same way that i'm going to tell people about my journey through cancer i don't know why i've been selected for such a tough journey but i'm just like whatever you want me to do with it god I'm just going to do it. But you now, say it so eloquently. People, you're just, it's just amazing I just how you want say people it. To, thank you. I just want people to, to know how to check their breasts and the fact that when cancer is found in black women as well, it's mm. always more aggressive. So Really? Uh, it's always more aggressive. Why yeah. is that? Why? Because they need it late no, to check. There were no studies. Which is the inequality oh, in the health. Wow. They need no to start studies. a petition for the government to look into that. Yeah, that's... That, that's my next that is my next project because when I spoke to my oncologist he said to me okay so black women don't tend to take well to chemotherapy and they're most likely to die from cancer or have a reoccurrence so we're going to try and keep you alive for the first five years I just said well okay so while I was going through a treatment it wasn't it was to obviously so I wouldn't die but their time frame is they try and keep you alive for five years I was like really Oh, okay. Well, I know that I'm not going to be part of your statistics, so that's okay. So just do what you need to do, and then I'm just going to put the rest in God's hands mm. because obviously you don't care about me enough. Because how can you tell me that 
black women are most likely to die from breast cancer, are most likely to have um, a reoccurrence, but there are no studies to show why that is. Mm. Mm. I just, I just don't understand. Are we not important? I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. And um, a few weeks ago, I went back to the hospital where I was diagnosed because I was challenging the fact that the lump was there in April and it was the same lump that they found in August. What, what are the odds of them not seeing something in April, but seeing something in August? And I was saying that if it wasn't for that student, they would have sent me on my way. And when they took my lump out, it was six centimetres and they said it was very aggressive. And they said, thank God we found it when we did because you could literally have been dead. And I just thought, this oh is God. well, this is crazy. So I actually spoke to the first consultant who saw me and I said, and he, he's a consultant from Sudan. And I said to him, you told me that what I was feeling wasn't a lump. He said, yeah, it didn't feel like a lump. I said, but it was a lump because that's what they took out. And it was six centimeters. It wasn't a small lump. You know, this is stage three. This is really aggressive. If they had sent me on their way, I wouldn't be here today to say to you that, you know, what was it? And then he said, look, we're trained to, to feel the way that we'd feel in a Caucasian person. And I said, but as a as a person of colour, surely you would have taken that more care to like to, to feel, you know, thank God that I had to have the um, the scan and given um, the risks are more high, isn't it, for a woman of colour? Yeah. yeah. But that's the issue though, their training is centered around black people. Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> yeah. So they're not really sure what to look for. Yeah, they don't know what to feel for. They wouldn't know what the difference is. There isn't a comparative. Exactly. Exactly, and they're not. I, it just made me think that it's it's almost like we're not important enough for them to record the differences that they're yeah. finding in the black women. Yeah. It's just it's just really really crazy. So, and then when I when I said to him, look, this is what I'm taking. He said, okay, yeah. I said, but what what I want to if I wanted to come off and you know have children, what's the what's the process? And they said, well, studies show. I said, well, your studies are not on black people, black. and you've already told me. <laughs> that, you know, you don't know why we're most likely to die or to have a reoccurrence. So maybe there's something that we've got in our genes that's completely different. How do I know that you're telling me that I need to take this medication exactly. for five to ten years? Yeah. How do I know that it's, it's going to work? And that's where my faith comes in that, look, God, they obviously don't know what they're doing when it comes to black people because it, I don't know whether we matter or not. So I'm leaving it into your hands because I would love to have a second child. And at the moment, I'm going through, I feel like I'm going through infertility all over again, a different level of infertility. Mm. Because when you go through chemotherapy, it, it more or less wipes out your, your fertility. So I couldn't even preserve my eggs because that would mean going through another round of IVF, which meant that if they pumped me full of hormones, the cancer could grow. And because the cancer was so aggressive, I could be dead by the time they'd finished doing the egg collection. So I couldn't do that. So what they had to do was shut down all of my hormones with this massive injection that I've got to take every month to put me in menopause. They had to do all of that first and then give me chemotherapy. It's my my situation is a little bit different. So I've still got my ovaries. Hopefully I've still got some eggs eggs left. But I won't know until I stop taking this medication, which they said I've got to take for five years. Yeah, I, I do feel like there's a lot of inequality that's going on because you're telling me to do certain things, but there's no research as to why you're doing it with people who look like me. 
And so I've, I've met some amazing people as with the, the fertility community. I've met some amazing people that, you know, I can talk to, that if I've got any questions, I feel I can go and, you know, speak to them, you know. And I just really just, just thank God the way that everything's panned out. Mm-hmm. I'm able to, you know, I'm here. I can tell my story. I do Instagram lives on um, how to check your breasts and just advocating for people to go and get like their smear tests as well because this this cancer thing is so so real so whenever i see young people go and get your smear test if they've sent you that letter go and do it it doesn't matter you know there's patient doctor confidentiality they're not going to tell your parents but just go because i look at someone like jay Goody who died at such a young age you know well that that leads me to your my next question is what advice would you give um women from black and asian communities who are going through infertility want to do ivf but are scared um very close-knit asian and black family and communities what what advice would you give them definitely to not be ashamed of your journey i I believe that we're all on different paths and our journey our path to our end goal will always be different. I know that most majority of people want to be parents, but the journey to parenthood is always different. No two journeys are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, some people can get pregnant, you know, they can blink and they're pregnant or they get pregnant on their honeymoon. Okay, that's great for them. But whatever your journey is, I'd all, I would just say really embrace it because I truly, truly believe that if you want something and you believe it, I believe that it will ha- it will happen. But then also seek help. And don't be afraid to seek help. And only tell people that you're, com- that you're comfortable with telling. Not everyone needs to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't be afraid to say to people, sorry, this is between my husband and I. It's no one's business. You owe no one an explanation. Be part of the trying to conceive community. I think Instagram, I know some people hate social media, but in terms of the trying to conceive community on Instagram, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So even if you join... It's not very diverse in, in terms of race. But yeah, you, people that. like you, yes. you're just changing that, which we love. No, you're right, but that's right the kind that. of the, the direction that we're trying to, to go in and, and in promoting more black and Asian charities, support networks for people because because we know, you know, what such a taboo subject is and there there isn't any there aren't many organisations there that support black women or, or Asian women in these situ- situations. It's always a certain type of demographic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, events. So um, I've held like three events. And one of the things that I notice is that if someone's going to come and they're trying to conceive and say it's a black, it's a young black person, mm-hmm. she'll always say, I don't want to come on my own. Can I bring like two other people? I don't know what it is about going somewhere and feeling that if I go people are going to think that I have a problem or people are going to know about my problem I don't know what it is I think I do believe that we need to break down those barriers and know that if like like I said my husband said if you have a headache and you go to the GP or there's something wrong you're going to take medication for it if if there's if someone's putting on an event where they're providing support information it's so so key Mm -hmm. that you it's I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether it's pride, but you strip away whatever it is and just say, look, I'm coming because I need to get there. I need, I need the help yeah. because suffering in silence isn't, isn't going to work. So I think more and more events. Whenever I, I used to go to try to conceive events, I'd always be the only black person or maybe a black and yeah. Asian person. They would, I'd always be. And I just think, <laughs> why are black people coming?
coming? Where where, where are they? I, I know well, that leads me to my next question. What what would you what advice would you give to Black and Asian women if they say I'm in I'm struggling with infertility? I'm leaving it to God. It's I'm just it's just I'm just leaving it to God. I'm I'm refusing to go down the IVF route. I'm refusing to go through any sort of hormone replacement. Anything. I'm leaving it to God. Then that's if that's what if that's what you truly believe. Then then you know then so so be it because I don't IVF isn't for everyone. It's mm. not everyone's answers. There are people who have, who have had nine rounds of IVF, and I think that that's a lot on your body. You know, and it's not it's not for everyone. And your body, uh, your body's not designed to go through that many rounds of mm. IVF. You know, because you don't know what you're, what's going to happen long term. So if they're truly holding on to their faith, then that's it. I mean, I hold on to my faith, and I, we, we, my husband and I, we prayed, we fasted about it, and I knew that our breakthrough was going to come that way. Like my body wasn't doing what it was supposed to. You know, so I knew that we needed a little bit of help. He'd show God had shown me that it's possible. It had happened before, and I knew that I needed help to get to Samuel, and I wasn't. I wasn't afraid to do it because I was at peace with the fact that I'd prayed about it and I knew that this was the answer. And and know sometimes you can pray about things, you've got your own idea in your head as to what you want the answer to be. So you tell yourself that, okay, yeah, this is what God has told me. We really, really prayed about it. it I think we prayed for about a year. And because when we when we first thought about it, we thought, no, we don't want to do this. We, you know, we don't we think that God's already done it. He may do it again. It was only once we prayed, we did our research, we'd spoken to so many different people that we, and then we just was still and said, God, we're not going to do anything. We just want you to show us and give us the direction and let us know what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. So, yeah, if that's what they're, if that's what they're believing in, then I, I have no, I'm not any, anyone to question mm. that. I wanted to ask actually, just going back where you said at the events that you went, you 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 would go to or do. Um, that the majority were white people and you were looking for black people. Have you noticed the change in that? Have you noticed more black and Asian? It's, um, I've seen a little bit more Asian people. Okay. If there's, normally if there's an event, I'd post it on my Instagram or I'd message my friends and say, hey, do you want to go together? And say, for instance, in 2018, it was a celebration of 40 years of IVF at the Science Museum. Mm-hmm. And I was called to be part of the focus group to help put the exhibition together. I was the only black person there. Oh, I saw that on your Instagram today. Yeah. Yeah. Why am I the only black person here again? You know, (laughs) there was, I don't think there's a, there's a lot more people talking about it, but I don't think that there's enough of an effort for them to draw in people Mm. from the black and ethnic minority, because the more, the more we see people who look like us, the more likely likely we are to talk up and to ask for help. It's just like with cancer. I really ignorantly thought that cancer black people didn't get cancer mm. because when you see cancer research and all of that it's always white people so yeah. when they said you got cancer i i really felt that they had got the wrong person because black people don't get cancer okay we just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to come on and be our guest today you've made it really special and you've hit on some key key issues that you know we could have addressed it better you basically your journey and all your experience just made it so much more and you know informative so thank you so much Thank you to Kemi for coming on and sharing her journey with us. She does have an Instagram page. It's at Kemi-Kems. And um, once you go on her page, you'll see that she actually does 
live Instagrams on how to check your breasts for cancer and lumps. Uh, breast cancer is the most common cancer in the UK and one in seven women will develop breast cancer and it's amazing what work she does and how she's reaching out to the black and Asian communities. We also have an Instagram page at Becoming Us Podcast and we also have Twitter, we also have a Facebook and more recently we have a YouTube. And if you'd like to please email us, we'd love to hear from you at uh, becominguspodcasts at gmail.com and we, we really look forward to hearing all of your comments or anything that you'd like to put forward for our next episodes but until then please take care of yourself and we'll see you soon bye